I'm Christy, and this is Homebrew Murder Crew. Hey everybody, it is just me today. Um, today I'm bringing you a case that is coming off of Megan's last case. Um, talking a little bit about domestic abuse and violence against women. So I wanted to start my case off with uh, some information, some statistics. And because my case is out of France, um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the statistics surrounding domestic violence in France. So this country has one of the highest rates of femicide classed as the murder of a woman by a current or former partner. This information is coming from the website statista.com and it says the convention known as the Istanbul Convention ratified by France in July 2014 defines violence against women as quote all acts of gender-based violence that result in or are likely to result in physical, sexual, psychological or economic harm or suffering to women end quote. This definition first points to the protein nature of these acts of violence, which can also be distinguished according to the sphere of life in which they occur and according to their perpetrators. It also highlights the fact that this violence cannot be attributed solely to an interaction between two specific individuals, but rather is part of a historically unequal balance of power between men and women, which is one of the main social mechanisms responsible for the domination and discrimination of the latter by the former. In France, the first victims of sexist and sexual violence are children. According to the High Council for Quality Between Women and Men, out of 300,000 rapes committed per year, 60% are committed on victims under 11 years old. Moreover, among the victims of rape, assault, or sexual harassment under aged 18, more than three quarters are women. By 2020, law enforcement agencies had recorded more than 25,000 such cases. Women with disabilities are also at greater risk of gender-based and sexual violence. In 2018, 7.3% of people living with disabilities reported experiencing physical and or sexual violence in the two previous years, compared to 5% of able-bodied people. So indeed, while being a woman in terms of social category is already a factor of discrimination, some women find themselves at the intersection of several of these factors. Thus, although France does not see colors and there are no studies on race in the social sense of the term of the victims of sexist and sexual violence, there is no doubt that sexist and misogynistic stereotypes severely affect minority women. The same applies to lesbians who by doubly transgressing the social norm of heterosexuality are more affected than heterosexual women or for transgender women whose assaults fueled by a combination of transphobia and sexism are numerous. In addition, with sexual violence being a matter of class and precariousness, sex workers are also more vulnerable to violence. So these stereotypes have serious consequences on the reception of the victim's voices and on the treatment of sexual violence cases by representatives of the justice system. And we see that all the time, not just in France, but we see that here in Canada and the United States and I'm sure everywhere. Uh, this is a big reason why you don't see women coming forward all the time 
or you see them come in troves, like somebody speaks up and then another person feels comfortable and then another person it creates a domino effect. One of the most common criticism made of victims of uh, physical and or sexual violence, regardless of the context, is not filing a complaint, like I just said. The discourse surrounding violence against women in the media often ignores the psychotraumatic mechanisms at work among victims, so if trauma studies teach us that a victim in a state of shock or paralysis cannot defend themselves when their physical or psychological integrity is threatened, post-traumatic mechanisms also explain why the victim does not immediately realize the violence they have just experienced. Because of this traumatic memory, the delay between the event and its disclosure can be very long. So. Given these deficiencies, associations play a key role. In France, organizations that help victims of gender-based violence and sexual violence exist throughout the country and offer support and accommodation facilities aimed at keeping female victims of violence and their children safe, as well as training adapted to different types of professional professionals. Although the government supports these associations, its participation remains insufficient, and according to a recent survey, it has some room for improvement. For example, French authorities uh, had reserved 7,820 emergency accommodation places dedicated to women in 2021, which represents a significant increase compared to the number of places available in the previous decade, but it remains largely insufficient. More than 20,000 women and children need emergency accommodation each year to help them leave a violent spouse. In addition, in many cases of femicide, previous violence had already been reported to law enforcement. And while the Court of Appeals is deploying restraining bracelets and protection orders, these numbers show the inadequacy of the, judicial of the judicial response to violence against women. Reinforcing the prosecution of sexual crimes and assaults against women is actually the measure that the French mentioned first when reflecting on the measures that the government should take in the face of this violence. I want to begin telling you the case of Valerie Beckel. Um, now, I do apologize in advance. I am not bilingual. I did take French class in uh, junior high, but... Um, I think I barely passed and it has been some time. So um, my apologies if I do not pronounce something correctly, if it sounds totally botched, I definitely do not mean any disrespect by it. Um, I did try to figure out how to pronounce these words beforehand and I wrote myself little notes, but I'm not sure, I'm not really sure how well I'm going to interpret those either. So um, today we're talking about Valerie Beckel. She was born in La Clayette, son Eloire in France on October 16, 1980 to her mother, Joelle Aubinet. Valerie's mother and father separated in 1992 when Valerie was 12 years old. Now, there's no real information that can be found about her biological father, but it was a pretty tumultuous relationship. Shortly after the divorce, Joelle got together with 37-year-old truck driver Daniel Paulette. By December 1992, so I mean literal weeks later, Daniel moved in with Joel and Valerie. At the beginning, he was a very caring man who would defend Valerie against her drunk mother. Joel was often described as a raging alcoholic who was authoritarian and violent, so um, Valerie was really happy to have somebody sticking up for her. 
She was happy to have this man around to defend her and care for her, but it was all a charade. His kindness, his nurturing demeanor, it was all really just the beginning of him grooming Valerie. Shortly after moving in, while Valerie was still just 12 years old, he had walked in on her in the bathroom while she was showering uh, with the intention to, quote, show her how to bathe her body, end quote. Um, that's disgusting. She's 12 years old and uh, I'm pretty sure she's had this lesson before and it's also not your place. So um, then Daniel began raping Valerie right after her first period. Valerie would say that she had no idea what he was doing to her until she attended a certain biology lesson at school, which is really sad. The rapes were violent and unrelenting. One time she even got carpet burn and every day she would get home from school. She'd have her after school snack and then he would tell her to go upstairs so he could sexually assault and rape her. Her mom was aware of this, although she would turn a blind eye to it and blatantly deny that she knew anything was going on. Truthfully, Joelle was likely a victim to Daniel as well, um, perhaps even based off of her last relationship that ended in divorce. Um, there could be a lot psychologically going on there, but um, perhaps she was afraid to do anything to protect her daughter for fear of what he might do in turn to her. And maybe she had been so brainwashed and beat down herself, but we don't know this for sure, nor do we know enough about hers and Daniel's relationship um, to begin making excuses for Joelle at this point. So I'll just leave it at that. But I did just want to recognize that this is a possibility. So again, Joelle would say that it all happened behind her back. Valerie would sit on Daniel's lap and Joelle thought that they were just really close. There were no red flags for her. She just thought that they had a really close loving relationship. After Daniel's two sisters had met his girlfriend and Valerie, so Joelle and Valerie, uh, they knew something wasn't right. Something was going on and they were immediately worried for Valerie because they too had suffered abuse at the hands of Daniel. Now, according to his sisters, there were times where they had to wipe up their own blood after he would beat them, their brothers, and even their own dad. Daniel would often rape his sisters at knife point and threaten to kill them if they spoke up to anyone about it. Daniel's sisters, afraid that Valerie might suffer or may have already suffered the same fate as them, called the police and turned him in. Now, I'm not sure what type of evidence they had on him, um, but Paulette was uh, ultimately jailed for incest in 1995 and sentenced to four years for rape against a minor under the age of 15. Joelle would force Valerie to visit Daniel in prison during this time. Joelle claimed that she never forced Valerie to do anything that she wanted to go because, because this way she was, quote, able to complete her hours of accompanied driving, end quote, like to get her license. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you shitting my dick right now? I'm actually sitting here smacking my head that this is the excuse that she made up. Ugh. Anyways, he only spent two and a half years in prison and was allowed to return to the family home and continued to rape Valerie. Joelle wanted to give him a quote, second chance, end quote. Joelle, Valerie's mother, had, had said, quote, I was naive when I thought that maybe someone can be forgiven and given a second chance, end quote. Like, no ma'am, 
you were simply only thinking of yourself. You didn't even report the rape because you claimed you had no idea what was going on under your own roof. It was Daniel's sister that reported the rape because she knew who Daniel was as she suffered the abuse at the hands of her brother for years while they were younger. Valerie said, quote, nobody seemed to find it bizarre that Daniel came back to live with us as if nothing had happened. Everybody knew, but nobody said anything, end quote. And now listeners, I want you to remember that quote where she says, everyone knew. Remember that for later. One day she heard her mother say, quote, I don't give a damn as long as she doesn't become pregnant, end quote. By the time Valerie turned 17, guess what? She fell pregnant from one of the rapes and her mom threw her out of the house. Daniel left the house as well and he and Joel broke up. Valerie had nowhere to go. I mean, she's 17, she's pregnant and Daniel has her so mentally and physically and emotionally brainwashed and dependent on him and this has been going on for so long. So she moves into the neighboring town of Baudemont with Daniel. Joelle, Joelle would later say, no, she never threw Valerie out of the house. To which Valerie said, no, mom, you actually helped me pack all my boxes of shit. Joelle often claimed that Valerie and Daniel were in a mutually exclusive, consensual, romantic relationship together. Like, I'm sorry, what? She was 12 years old and not able to consent or even know what love really is. I mean, it's, it's not like she had any great examples of love at this point. And Joelle also said that she didn't want to interfere with their relationship. So she also claimed that Valerie wrote her mom a letter saying that she, quote, wanted to live my life and stay with my man, end quote, that they had petitioned the court to allow them to live together. But big surprise, though, there is never any record of this letter. Valerie and Daniel end up getting legally married. I can't. I can't. What the fuck? Ugh. Joelle said, fuck, every time I say her name, I just want to gag. I hate this woman. Joelle said she watched their marriage from a distance and assumed that they were happy. When asked if she had ever been jealous of their relationship, she said, quote, absolutely not. I am not jealous by nature, end quote. Slow clap. Wow. We should all feel blessed to be graced with the presence of such perfection as Joelle. Get fucked. Now, Daniel had complete control over Valerie's life in every way. He was still sexually abusing her. And according to Valerie, they never once had consensual sex, regardless of whether or not she was manipulated into loving this man, her stepfather turned husband. Oh yeah, I've forgotten. I haven't said those disgusting words together out loud yet. Stepfather turned husband. Obviously not by her choice, the poor girl. Daniel was a very aggressive person. He was also addicted to porn, which is not healthy. And he drank a lot and became easily irritable while drunk. So any little thing could set him off. And the first time he actually hit Valerie, he had slapped her across the face because she failed to clean up the kids' toys in the living room. The physical violence only escalated from there. What started as a slap soon turned into kicking and punching and attacking her with a hammer. He would not allow Valerie to have a job, leave the house, or use contraception. So she would go on to have three more children with Daniel for four total. 
And I can't begin to understand why this man even wants to have children in the first place because he doesn't seem overly caring and nurturing and the child rearing type. The only idea that I have in my mind is that these are just opportunities for him to groom in the future, which is disgusting, absolutely repulsive. Oh, but things get worse. Daniel began threatening her and the children with a gun. Actual, literal threats to kill each family member, psychologically fucking them up big time by aiming an unbeknownst to them, unloaded gun at their heads and even pulling the trigger, brandishing the threat that he would load the weapon next time. Like the guy is fucking unhinged. The couple's children claim to have tried to alert the police to the violence at home and they say that they were turned away because they either because they were minors or they were told that Valerie would have to come and file the complaint herself or that the case did not fall within their jurisdiction. There's just some conflicting information on what the excuse really was as to why they couldn't help. But during the trial, the gendarme, which are the police essentially, they denied this claim at the trial, even stating that there were no records of a complaint being filed by anyone. I mean, yeah, because you, you didn't want to deal with it. But who am I? I'm just some bitch on a podcast. In 2002, Valerie is 22 years old and Daniel is 47, and they start to have some money issues. So to solve the problem, Daniel takes on a second job. Oh, no, just kidding. I mean, he would actually force Valerie to get a job as a prostitute. Oh, and Daniel would be the one pimping her out to his fellow truck drivers. Mm -hmm. Daniel used the family minivan to sell her to these truck drivers. Yes, he turned the family minivan into his pimp mobile. He would charge between 25 to 50 euros per visit. He made her wear an earpiece so that he could talk to her through it and give her instructions on what to do and how to do it to these men and threaten her the entire time she was being raped that if she asked for help, he would kill her. This went on for 14 years. She had no free will left. He was always there. He was always watching. He controlled everything, her every move. She would later state that she could tolerate all of this abuse, the rapes, the beatings, the prostitutions. She would have put up with it all. But one day she overheard Daniel asking their 14-year-old daughter, quote, how she was sexually, end quote. <laughs> their daughter, the third of the four children, would later say that he would make her come into bed with him. He would stroke her hair and ask her the most disgusting, repulsive, horrid things that I don't and won't even repeat here. And she said, quote, I didn't feel comfortable when he looked at me or stroked my hair. It wasn't tenderness, end quote. From the moment she heard him speak those words to her daughter, she knew then and there that he would groom her next for serial rape. And Valerie would not let that happen like her mother allowed it to happen to her. Valerie's about to go mama bear on his ass. Okay? So now she's 40 years old at this time. And Valerie's, she's made up her mind. She needs to protect her family. So the first thing she tries is to poison Daniel with sleeping pills. But that, she was unsuccessful. And then on March 13th, 2016, after a violent prostitution situation, Daniel's driving her home. She's in the back. Daniel would have a 
gun in the vehicle with him and she was able to get a hold of it. So she shot Daniel in the back of the neck with his own gun that he had hidden, killing him with one shot, like literally crap, okay? Valerie said, quote, I took the gun, there was a loud noise, the flash, the smell. I got out of the car, opened the door and he fell. I thought only of saving myself because I was sure he was going to kill me, end quote. She then had to tell her kids that she had just killed the monster they call their father. Her two eldest sons, aged 16 and 17, and a boy named Lucas Granite, which is her daughter's boyfriend, he was 16, uh, they all helped her to drag the body into a wooded area and bury it. The whole time, Valerie is frantically throwing dirt on his grave. She's terrified that he's not actually dead, that he's going to get up and kill her and her kids. I mean, Valerie murdered him at her own hands. She saw this, but she's still convinced that he's going to come after her and that he's got control over her. Valerie then reported the disappearance of her husband to the police and his body would not be found until late 2017, the next year. Valerie's daughter's boyfriend, Lucas, who had helped bury the body, had somehow let it slip to his mother in conversation. And she had went ahead and contacted the police regarding the murder, naming Valerie as the one who pulled the trigger. I don't know how this just slips and comes up in conversation. I don't even know what conversation you could possibly be having with your mother that would allow you to let something like this slip. But anyways, that's neither here nor there. In October 2017, Valerie and her two older children are arrested. Valerie is indicted for murder and her two older children are indicted for concealment of a corpse and not reporting a crime. Meanwhile, her case explodes in the media. Everyone is aware what has happened and why, and those already advocating against domestic violence and femicide are going wild after this story. Over 715,000 people signed a petition to ask the then French president, Emmanuel Macron, for a presidential pardon for Valerie. As Valerie's case harkens back to Jacqueline Savage, um, she's a French woman who fatally shot her husband after years of abuse against her and her children. Actually, one of her sons actually committed suicide um, because of all this abuse. Um, Jacqueline won. She won a presidential. She won a presidential pardon after being sentenced to ten years in prison, but Valerie wouldn't need it. Valerie and her children were released under judicial supervision in 2018, pending the trial. Valerie was very upfront in stating that she knows she committed murder. She knows what she did was wrong. She said, quote, I deserve to go to jail for a very long time. That's normal. But this trial is not only mine, but that of the other. And she's referring to Daniel. I hope that I can be stronger than him and for once in my life win against him. But if my sentence is heavy, that will mean to me that he had the right to behave the way that he behaved with me. Damn, mic drop on that one. Yes, absolutely. If your sentence is heavy, that only means that he was right to do what he'd been doing to her and that she wasn't right for defending herself and her family. So I get that. And also, my God, she's saying for once in my life, win against him. She's killed him and she doesn't think she's won. Oof. 
On November 21st, 2019, the trial of the children took place in Macon, France. They were sentenced to a six-month suspended prison sentence. And then in May 2021, Valerie would write her memoirs detailing her life with Daniel, and she called it Tout le monde savant, which translates to everyone knew. And that, my friends, is the part that I wanted you to uh, remember. Okay, so she said earlier, everyone knew, but nobody did anything when Daniel came back and to live with them after his prison sentence for incest. Everyone knew, but no one did anything. Nobody thought it was strange. So now she's written a book called Everyone Knew. It was published in 10 days and it instantly became a bestseller. Then on June 21st, 2021, she was sentenced to four years in prison with three years suspended. And since she spent one year in pretrial detention, she was free to go home. So in her book, Beko says that she's often asked why she didn't leave her husband. And she says to that quote, I think if you haven't lived this kind of life, it's difficult to understand. When your daily life is a series of blows, threats, insults, and humiliations, you end up being incapable of thought. Your partner has brainwashed you and you think everything he says is true. You think the problem is with you, not with him, and that you deserve everything you get, end quote. Daniel's own sister said that the person she thanks the most is Valerie because, quote, she killed him. She did what I should have done long time ago, end quote. Now, even though Valerie is free to go home, I mean, she's going to spend many, many years, you know, trying to overcome this. Like, she's a lot of pieces to pick up, I guess, for herself and her family. But, um... She had said that her fight's not over, you know, like it's it's not just go home, sit on the couch, throw on some TV and forget that this ever happened. Um, there's a lot of psychological, physical damage that went on over the many, many years that she was with this man and forced to be with this man. Um, but in all of that, she is already ready to start helping other women that are facing similar issues. So that's... Uh, huge that's huge of somebody who's literally just gone through this herself that you know you can be so empty but you still have a drop left to pour for somebody else which is incredible so i want to leave you with a little bit of information um about battered women syndrome Battered women syndrome, also known as BWS, there's psychological symptoms that develop in some women who are victims of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse, making it difficult for them to regain control. So these are the issues that Valerie is gonna face now that she's home and in the world, right? She's gonna have a hard time trusting anybody, right? She couldn't even trust her own mother to protect her. So women who are victims of intimate partner violence have been identified by the mental health field for more than 30 years now. It is understood that domestic violence is part of gender violence and that many more women than men are victims of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. Now, I just wanna say, that's not to say that men do not experience it, they do. Um, they're just speaking that the numbers are much higher for women. Even when women strike back or engage in mutual violence, it's usually the woman who is most likely to be hurt both physically and emotionally. Women who strike back in self-defense are often arrested along with the, their batterer. And 
they also face the fear of retaliation from their partner. It's further understood that gender violence is fostered by the socialization of men to be more powerful than women. Now, we talked about this in the beginning of the episode. In some men, this process creates the need to abuse power and to control women. While the term victim is not always considered politically correct, in fact, until battered women take back some control over their lives, they may not truly be considered survivors. So, again, this is going back to what I said about Valerie. Everybody in the trial in the courts is looking at her. She's so brave. She's survived this. She survived this. Well, she's not over it yet. Right? Like she has a lot that she has to to do, a lot of work that needs to be done to, to get through this. So she's she's not quite there yet. Psychological symptoms called battered women syndrome, BWS, develop in some women and make it difficult for them to regain control. Mental health professionals have been able to assist these battered women with empowerment techniques and with accurate diagnosis and proper treatment. Now Battered women syndrome is not a defense in itself, but it can be used as a diagnosis that can constitute other legal defenses, such as self-defense, provocation, not guilty by reason of insanity, or diminished responsibility. So historically, violence against women is not only common, but it's also been considered legal for most of humanity, which is insane. In a Roman times, a husband was permitted to use reasonable physical force, including blackening the eyes or breaking the nose of his wife when he was disciplining her. In the 1400s, a law was set forth that a man was allowed to beat his wife with a stick no thicker than his thumb. Hence, we have the rule of thumb today. Okay, obviously it doesn't carry the same meaning today when we use it, but I bet that you might think twice before using the term. And then the old English principle of coverture meant that married women could not own property free from her husband. In fact, women themselves were seen as property. And to illustrate this, in old English rape laws, if rape occurred, it was considered to be against the husband or the father or the financial benefiter of the woman because the male was the owner of the victim and he was then compensated for the damage to his property. What? What? Oh my God. Marital rape was also inconceivable for hundreds of years because it was not believed that the woman could legally refuse their husband's sexual advances. So um, that is just some crazy background on violence against women from like way back in the day. Anyways, I am hoping that you guys enjoyed this uh, case. It's definitely one that... um, needs to be shared more because damn this woman is badass and um i'm really hoping for the best the best outcome for valerie and i will obviously be including some some links and resources in the show notes if you do um, know anybody who is experiencing intimate partner violence if you yourself are experiencing it um or if you just want to have it handy uh, there will be information also please check out Uh, Megan's last episode the one before this because she also will have some great resources in her show notes as well so you can find us on our socials we are on Facebook at Homebrew Murder Crew we're on Instagram at Homebrew Murder Crew and 
who can email us at homebrewmurdercrew at gmail.com. So thanks for joining me. I know it's just a little old me, but I appreciate you and we'll chat with you soon. Bye.